Welcome to Newton & Co, another Eye for the Light podcast. And as usual, I'm here with my co-host, David Newton. Hi, David. Hi, Chris. Good to be here again. Today, we have a bit of a break from photographers, but we've got someone very interesting, an an adventurer, which is very in my sphere of the world. So, Chris, please tell us, introduce our podcastee for today. Well, it's Tiffany Coates. And Tiffany is a, she's been called a spirit of adventure, but she's certainly a free spirit. Uh, she travels the world on her motorbike. So, Tiffany, where did your wanderlust come from? I think I must have been born with it because my dad was in the army and growing up, we used to move every two years. So myself, my brothers and sisters were all born in different places. And we've never gone back to those places we were born in. So you sort of end up with sort of permanent itchy feet because there's no specific place that you think of as home. Home is just where you are. For example, my first school was Cantonese kindergarten because we were stationed in Malaysia. Uh, So it's straight in at the deep end, quite often going to new schools. I would never look like the people around me or or sound like them. And you just learn to smile, get on with it and make friends. So was that where you were born in Malaysia? Uh, No, I was born in a place called Tidworth. Well, that's what it says on my passport anyway. Um, (laughs) I think Dorset, maybe Wiltshire way. Okay, so the travels started really young then. Yeah, mum had the baby, then pack up the house and move on to the next place. (laughs) So yeah, so always going different places, mostly in the UK. But I think mainly that wanderlust part is about having a positive attitude to the changes and the moves and the what's around the corner and where does the next adventure take us and how's it going to unfold? You know, and as a child, it's like something like, what's my school going to be like? What's my bedroom going to be like? And then as you get older, it's like, oh, what's the next country going to look like? And how am I going to get there? And how long will I spend there? So that sense of something new always nudging away from you in the distance. So looking very much to the future, although being rooted in the present. Yeah, I think so. Although I am also very good at living in the present. I'm very fast to put down roots. So I'll arrive somewhere and I'll be like, right, okay, there's this and this and this here. Fantastic. I can feel comfortable just about anywhere. I have been accused of having zero comfort zone. So whether it's putting my tent up on a minefield in Mauritania or, and quite often my tent does feature, I do a lot of wild camping on my trips, um, or putting my tent up on a concrete car park at the customs office in Uzbekistan because they're not open for another 36 hours. So I'm like, right, I'm just going to have to wait here then sleeping on the decks of ferries sometimes for days on end waiting for the ferry to dock all sorts of places that you just sort of this is part of the adventure and i'm going to make the most of it you've traveled all your life it would appear where did motorbikes come into this motorcycling is not the obvious mode of transport i don't feel oh not at all not at all no one in my family rides motorbikes It came about by accident, really. So I sometimes get called the accidental motorbike traveller. So having grown up, always moving and then taking off with my backpack, going around the world, working and living in lots of different countries. And one day I happened to be back in the UK and I was talking to my best friend, Becky, and I said, I'm going to India next. And she said, oh, I'd like to go. I've never been either. So, oh, well, let's go together. And I'm quite happy traveling solo or with others. So... It was like, yeah, okay, let's go together. I said, I do want to go overland to get there. 
the previous summer I'd hitchhiked out to Turkey with the boyfriend I was with at the time and some of the lifts that we'd been offered were truck drivers saying they were going to Karachi or to Tehran and I was saying no no it's all right we'll get out in Istanbul that's as far as we're going but for me that was a real eye-opener because this was pre-digital and it was pre-long way round and all the other transcontinental travel stories that we see on our screens or through the internet so it, a lot less was known about the possibilities of overland travel then. and I used to think oh that's something that the hippies used to do in the 60s and 70s but it turns out no overland travel is possible so I said to Becky I'd like to go overland and I suppose we were sort of both thinking of buses trains hitchhiking the usual sort of routes we would use but then one of us and we can't remember which one said let's go by motorbike and it was suddenly a wow fantastic idea yep we'll go to india on a motorbike we didn't have bikes we didn't have licenses neither of us had any idea how to ride and in fact becky had never even been on a bike in her life i used to go out with a guy who had one and i'd been on the back a few times and i said oh it's the most amazing sensation just being on two wheels and just whizzing along so on the strength of that we said right it's what we're gonna do so we went on to do some training, obviously, need to learn how to ride that bike. So we did five days intensive, Monday to Friday, on a 125cc, which are pretty small motorbikes, really. And we, to our amazement, we both passed on the first attempt on the Friday afternoon at the end of the training course. So then we said to people, we've got motorbike licenses, we're going to buy a bike and we're going to ride it to India. From the start, we said, we're just going to take one bike between us. We haven't got much money, so budget is not going to be a big one. So one bike will help. And it's simpler. You can't lose each other if you're both on the same bike. And also, it's something that we're happy to share the riding. Most pairs or couples who travel, one of them will be a more experienced rider and perhaps wouldn't be so comfortable at having a total novice on the front. And we said, well, we're both novices, so we'll take it in turns with the riding and we're both happy with that. So we started looking around. We found a secondhand 800cc BMW, an R80GS. A mechanic friend of ours already knew the owner and the motorbike, so he assured us, yep, it's a good motorbike and he's a sound bloke who's selling it. So we bought it sight unseen and went round the next day to go pick it up with our money in our hands. And we were like, oh, we didn't realise they're that big. We'd never actually seen one before. You know, we, all our, our only experience was five days on 125s and suddenly there's this quarter ton beast of steel and iron there. And it was, oh goodness, right, okay. Well, we'll have to give this a go then. Um, we were dropping the bike a lot in the beginning, but we gradually got to grips with it. And within two months of getting the bike, that was it, we took off to India. We were still dropping the bike a bit, I must admit. For example, reading through the journal, day two, we've reached Germany. We've only dropped the bike three times today. Um, <laughs> but I've got to say, I know that always worries people. It, it, it would only happen in slow motion or when we were at a standstill. We're pulling up to a red traffic light and whoever's on the front goes to put her foot down and um, we're both on tiptoes to reach the ground anyway with this quarter ton motorbike if your foot goes down on a bit of uneven ground or a bit of gravel and the toes slip a bit then that's it the bike just starts tipping over and once it's gone across that tipping point you haven't got a hope in hell of keeping it up and the one on the back through the intercom would just hear this squawk of left foot down and she's desperately trying to get her left foot down as well, but it was impossible. The bike would just slowly topple over. 
we'd jump off, pick it up, carry on riding. So it was never high speed crashes or anything like that. It was more the sort of slightly embarrassing, oh dear, motorbikes toppled over. Let's pick it up and get out of here. So on that journey, you must have gone through some very interesting countries. You said you'd been to Turkey before. Going on from there, where did you go? Okay, so this was the late 90s. Routes were a little bit more constricted than they are now. From Turkey, we went through Iran. We did about 2,000 miles across Iran. We wore the full Shador, the name for the burqa in Farsi. So we're sort of head to toe in these black robes over the motorbike gear with the motorbike helmet on top. We did look a bit bizarre. We did get nicknamed nuns on the run, as you can imagine, especially when we were out on the open roads across the desert. So the roads were fantastic, smooth tarmac. So we ride along these black robes flapping around as we're going along. And in fact, Iran is the only country we've ever traveled in where it's immediately obvious that it's two women on the motorbike. Every other place we've been, um, people always assume it's a man riding. Um, they might not be too sure about the person on the back till they take the helmet off, but there's always this assumption, oh yes, that's a man riding it. And then when we take the helmets off, oh, no, it is a woman. Iran, it was right from the, clear from the start, oh yes, that's two women, because it's two Shadors flapping in the wind as they go along. We had a fantastic time in Iran, really loved it, and then reached Pakistan. Oh, that was such an eye-opener. It was an incredible experience. The people were so hospitable and the landscapes and scenery were breathtaking. We actually spent much longer in Pakistan than we thought we would. And I must admit, I hesitate to use the word plan. We're not the best at planning. So we didn't really have a set plan for, oh, we'll do this, this, this. It was just more a case of, let's try and work out a route that we can take and that we can get the visas for, because that's the tricky bit is getting the visas for some countries. So Iran is very up and down about getting visas. Luckily, we just about got five day transit visas. And then and we never told the authorities we were riding a motorbike. We just pretended we were normal tourists. And then we managed to extend them for a few more weeks while we were in Iran. But yes, yeah, so Turkey, Iran, Pakistan, and then across the border into Amritsar in India. Stayed the first night in India in the Golden Temple as pilgrims and the other pilgrims helped us push the motorbike inside the temple complex to keep it safe for the night. And put down our sleeping mats and sleeping bags alongside all the real pilgrims and stayed there for a couple of days before exploring the rest of India. Wow. And India, the end of the journey? Or oh, clearly wasn't because you've done a lot of motorbiking since. Well, that was it. It was such an experience getting to India and then traveling around India on two wheels. I really believe motorbike travel provides the perfect experience of the independence and freedom to go wherever you want, but without being too tied down with a larger vehicle and some of the protocols you're supposed to follow. For example, if we're going through mountains and stuff and we can follow a footpath on the motorbike and then just quietly put our tent up somewhere secluded on the side of a mountain without having to worry about going down into the valleys which can be hot and dusty in much of southern Asia and trying to find a hostel or a cheap hotel to stay in we had that freedom to just set our tent up wherever we wanted to stay so we'd had a lot of fun a lot of adventures along the way getting to India and then traveling around India and I always remember we sort of looked at each other and said wow this has been even more than I could have hoped for. And look, we've still got money in our purses. Let's see if we can get to Australia. So we didn't stop. We went across India. We weren't allowed into Myanmar because they weren't allowing foreign vehicles in those days. 
So we found a shipping agent on the eastern side of India and shipped the motorbike. And by the way, the motorbike's called Thelma, a female bike, very much part of the female team endeavor we were undertaking. So we shipped Thelma past Myanmar into Thailand and we flew over. They wouldn't let us go on the boat. They said it was insurance purposes. So we flew over and then we rode Thelma all the way down through Thailand, Malaysia, down to Singapore. Indonesia wouldn't let us in either. So we then found another shipping agent and we shipped Thelma from Singapore down to Perth in Western Australia and proceeded to ride across Australia from Perth to Sydney and then had to stop there because we had no money left by that point. But luckily have some good friends there and we were able to couch surf for a while till we both got jobs and then we rented a room and we stayed there for a while, saving up money to get home, really. And by this point, we realised, OK, most bike travellers ship their bikes home at the end of a journey. So we started looking into shipping Thelma home. But when you're in Australia and you look at a map of the world and you've got the UK up in that corner and Australia down in that bottom corner and in between there's Africa. And it suddenly occurred to us, oh, my gosh, this feels like cheating if we were just to ship Thelma home. Let's go home through Africa. It can't be too difficult. We've already crossed Europe, Asia and Australia. So, yeah, we'll ride home through Africa. So that suddenly became the next new plan. And it's very simple. When you look at the map, you just ship the bike across from Sydney into Cape Town in South Africa and then just head due north. So we started planning that, at which point Becky met the man of her dreams and decided she was going to settle down with him. But I managed to find another friend of mine who would come and join me. I'd worked out how to pick up the bike on my own, so I felt happy enough about travelling on my own with the bike because to me that's, you know, that's the bottom level is you must be able to pick up your bike because chances are you'll drop it somewhere really remote and if there's no one around to help you, then you're left to your own devices. So I thought, yeah, I can pick up the bike on my own. I could ride across Africa on my own, but I think it'll be more fun with someone else. So I managed to persuade my friend Maggie, who's from Galway in Ireland. She's got a motorbike licence, no big bike experience, and I said... Maggie, if I can ride to Australia with no previous big bike experience, you can come out to Africa. Just bring your sleeping bag. I've got Maggie's helmet and jacket and I'll show you how to ride Thelma and we'll ride home. It'll be a piece of piss. It wasn't quite a piece of piss. <laughs> I don't know if you guys have experience of Africa, but it is the toughest continent. The sheer lack of infrastructure, the conflicts saying that there are conflicts all over the world we didn't have any threats of violence or any problems in that respect but sometimes it does dictate where you can and can't go for example Angola wouldn't let us in they were just coming out of their civil war um, so we zigzagged our, our way around through Africa I finally got home and my parents particularly my mum though they've brought us up to be very independent and so she wasn't phased by all the bike travel thing but when i did get home she said oh tiffany you went off on that motorbike and said you're going to india and you'd be about eight or nine months you've been gone for two and a half years where the hell have you been <laughs> and pre-digital era by the end of the trip we had emails and everything but when we set off we had no emails so i used to send letters and postcards and the occasional phone call would be made but um, yeah, basically, as far as my parents were concerned, they'd waved me off on my motorbike and then didn't see me for two and a half years. And I came wow. back just hungry for more. And you've been across, obviously, you've been right through Asia, been up through Africa. Were there any places that were it was very difficult for you to travel as a woman or as two women? I never felt that. And I think in some respects, it opens more doors and can make things easier to be traveling as females. 
there's well I've been told that we do seem to be greeted more warmly there's less chance of confrontation local people less likely to feel defensive or wary because oh there's some man here he's turned up on this big motorbike what does he want it's like oh it's two women on a motorbike it, we were more a subject of curiosity than fear we would get invited into people's houses and in many of the more muslim areas of asia that was fantastic we'd be invited into houses and the hospitality we were given was just incredible whereas the male riders couldn't go anywhere near people's houses because of the stricter rules around islam yes with africa we'd be welcomed by the women and we'd get to hang out with the women and the children but we were also treated as honorary males because we were traveling independently and quite crucially we had our own vehicle which immediately gives people some sort of status in some people's eyes anyway so yes we were honorary men but able to relax and have fun with the families as well if you were to pick out say just from that first trip and maybe we'll expand it to to all your trips but if you were to pick out from that first trip what was the most exciting place you went to asia and australia and, and africa and excitement takes many forms but if you had to pinpoint one of them i think probably sudan and i think quite often when you're traveling exciting can be equated with challenging or difficult because that's what gets the heart racing and the, oh my God, what the hell is going to happen here? And the introduction to Sudan coming across up through Ethiopia, where the defence attaché at the British Embassy had said, I've absolutely got to tell you, you should not be making this trip. The minefields, the problems with Eritrea, blah, blah, blah. I, you know, I've got to warn you, you must not make this trip. And then he, took, he literally took his hat off, came around the other side of the desk and said, but I wish I was doing it. Good luck, ladies, good luck. <laughs> so yeah, so going up through Northern Ethiopia, oh, the river crossings and stuff, that was tough. And then we get to Sudan and we'd, we'd luckily met another motorbiking pair coming south. And we didn't meet very many in Africa once we'd gone beyond Kenya. And there was this French couple that we met in Northern Ethiopia who were coming south. And they warned us that the border between Ethiopia, Ethiopia and Sudan is marked by a river. And they said that literally is the border because sure enough when we got up there we cleared the customs and immigration on the ethiopian side and then they just pointed to the riverbank and we rode to the edge and yep sure enough you ride down the riverbank into the river at which point someone on the sudanese side is waded out into the middle of the river with his hand up like that and you stop midpoint in the river and then it was it was tough luckily this french couple had warned us that they stop you in the middle of the river for the crossing and so i'm trying to balance the motorbike in this river i mean this was quite a shallow one it was probably not much more than knee deep but i'm trying to balance the motorbike against the water rushing past and also communicating with the border guard the system we had was the person on the back has the documents so the person riding pillion she pulls out the documents and then we got permission for her to climb off so that would then make the bike a bit easier for me to hold up except it then rises up a couple of centimeters without her weight on it so i was thinking oh no she was keeping me anchored on the riverbed but just about still held it and sorted out the paperwork in the middle of the river and then they gave us permission to carry on sort of through the river and then up the bank on the other side and stop at the first hut we saw to actually be stamped in so that was quite an introduction to Sudan. The roads were just absolutely horrendous after that. 
oh, we were dropping the bike numerous, numerous times. The heat was intense. We, yeah, we didn't, I'll be honest, and we didn't have enough water carrying capacity. I learned my lesson with that. But to be honest, yeah, what the hell was I thinking? This is the Sahara Desert we're crossing. Uh, we should have been carrying far more water. And we'd arrive into villages just sort of, quick, we need more water. And we'd queue up with the camels and goats at the well. And But we'd be beckoned forward each time. And we'd go forward with our water bottles. And they'd give us water straight from the well. And we'd just be drinking it directly down. Oh, it tasted so good. So that was one of the tough things. The um, difficult roads, the harsh climate. People who really don't have much at all, able to give us rice and beans to eat, giving us water to drink. We'd always offer them some money if they were giving us sort of food and we'd say, get something for the children. We're also carrying our own food and we would share it with them. And the number of people who were sort of amazed at our porridge oats that we'd be eating in the morning. We'd just have them cold, I have to say, just with a bit of water on them and some fruit. So that sort of sharing of food and sharing of cultures but getting through Sudan and then the top bit where it really is the Sahara Desert, getting to Wadi Halfa and getting the boat across up to Egypt. Just one of those experiences that stays with you forever. So I think in answer to your question, probably Sudan was the most exciting. Everything you say, everything you talk about, the way you talk about it, you, you sound like the epitome of not overthinking anything. Just get up and go. And I'm wondering how much of a strength that is versus how much it gets you into unexpected hot water. <laughs> oh, wow. Do you know, I don't think anyone's ever said to me that my lack of planning and research is a strength. So I'm, I'm enjoying that and I'm taking it while I can. <laughs> yes, it's true. I'm not one for sort of sitting down and doing lots of research. I mean, I love to read travel books, don't get me wrong, but I just love to get to somewhere and go and explore for myself. And I think with less planning, then there is that op those opportunities to take up those unexpected offers of hospitality or sometimes helping out with work situations somewhere where they just want a hand with some teaching or something like that. Sometimes ending up with a route that's far more zigzaggy and going back on itself than it would otherwise be. Planning isn't my forte. I've met people who they really enjoy the planning. And in fact, I once met a traveler who had the self-awareness to say, I hadn't realized travel could be such a lonely pastime. And he said, to be honest, the five years I spent planning and preparing for this journey, I think I enjoyed more than the actual journey itself. To me, that was like, you spent five years planning? Oh my God, we were two months. <laughs> and then didn't get back for two and a half years. So I think most people do it the other way around. They spend more time planning than actually undertaking a journey, potentially, than the way we did it. But yes, those being flexible and adaptable to me is sort of very much part of that gives the zest to the travel. You've obviously met a lot of people in a lot of different countries. I know, I know another motorcycle, female motorcycle traveller who is actually my wife's godmother, and she soloed South America on a motorbike. And I'm wondering how much her experience tallies with yours, where she said that the reality is 99.9% .9 of the people you meet are just nice and normal and happy and want to help. You've just got to learn to spot the 0.1% of arseholes. How does your experience tally with that? How do you find, have you found people on the road? I agree with her 100%, definitely. And in fact, there's 
a video that BMW made about my travels and that's one of the opening lines is 99.9% of the people you meet are nice kind people and I think to be a successful traveller and someone who's happy to take those risks and opportunities that travel provides, you've got to have a good sense of who you are but also that sense of being able to rely on your own resources and your own initiative and that gut instinct for this guy is dodgy or that situation, that doesn't look great. I'm just going to make my excuses and I'm out of here. So being able to judge someone, sometimes it needs to be a snap decision, those first impressions and having that strength or that sureness about your decision making that, yep, I'm getting out of here. This isn't good. It's very rare I've had to do that, but on the odd occasion, yes, just um, followed through and just gone off somewhere else instead. So yeah, that sort of sussing out that 0.1% of people out of the many, many that you encounter. And of course, every day brings new strangers, but also I'm a stranger in those countries and I'm almost like an ambassador from other nations, especially being a solo female on a bike. Because after those first journeys with Becky and then Maggie, Maggie found the job of her dreams. So then I found myself traveling on my own, which I've done a lot of that with my backpack. So I'm certainly comfortable with that. And I went on to ride from Alaska down to Tierra del Fuego and then and did a complete circumnavigation around South America on my bike, 14 months solo on the road. But I've, yeah, I just get on with life now. I think the, the fact that you're still here and still exploring is testament maybe to your gut instinct and following your gut instinct in, in, when you meet people. One of the, the rich things about travel is the meeting people. And I'm getting a real sense of you've discovered a world where hospitality is kind of king and people welcome you. It's not the thing to be feared. Would you say that's a kind of fair assessment? Oh, definitely. Definitely. Yes. It's amazing how much people will open up to you and give you food, shelter, something to drink and just welcoming me into their lives, into their households. It can really make or break a trip, really. When I have had negative experiences, it's where there hasn't been the sense of humanity, let alone hospitality, um, someone reaching out to another human to help them out. So, yeah, I think hospitality is a big thing and making that con those connections with different people along the way. And has that changed since you did your first big trip? Do you still find that same response of people wherever you go or is time changing that? Oh, that's a tricky one. I mean, what we do find now is people are much more aware of the wider world. It's amazing how many people have mobile phones in the smallest villages, in the most remote areas. People will have their mobile phones. What I do quite enjoy is the fact that the tables are turned on us as travellers now, rather than us being the ones with cameras. The locals are all coming up to take photos with me, selfies, photos of my motorbike, photos of them sitting on my motorbike, or if I'm riding along, coming alongside in cars with the windows open and they're all filming me through the window of their cars or at the back of minibuses. I'm now a subject of curiosity and they're able to sort of take the photos and record the fact that there was this strange woman on her motorbike passing through here. But also they're more aware of the world itself. The internet has made a big difference there. There is still huge amounts of hospitality everywhere, but there is that greater knowledge for, oh, you're from Great Britain. 
oh, didn't Great Britain get involved in this situation or that situation? I do find myself almost um, defending the nation that I come from. Defending or apologising for. Well, that's it. Yeah, that's yeah. that's another way of putting it. Yeah, <laughs> apologising for it. And sort of saying, yes, that's my government. And you'll find that your government equally is at odds with how you are as a person. Um, especially in Iran, people used to say that we're not our government. I've been back to Iran and crossed it again since since that first journey. And the people are so warm and totally at odds with some of the rhetoric that issues from their government. You've travelled from UK to Australia, across Asia to Japan, the length of Africa, across the USA and the length of the Americas. Where next? There's always somewhere new. And in fact, you didn't mention Timbuktu. That was the trip I did after the big South America trip. Where next? Well, now I sort of feel like, I mean, there's definitely always new places to go to. And there's a constantly revolving top five of destinations in my head. I would say that's the um, joining up the dots these days. So when I look at the map on the back of my top box on Thelma, because, oh yeah, I've still got the same motorbike. And in fact, Thelma is the only vehicle I've ever owned because I never had that sort of small bike up to big bike experience. I've never owned a car. And as far as I'm concerned, Thelma still goes fine. So I would head off tomorrow going around the world on Thelma. Yeah, so I've got the map on the top box that shows all the different routes. So one that does sort of glare out at me is the, the routes through Africa. So I've gone back to Africa several times since that first journey. I've done some big journeys around Madagascar. I've also been back over into Kenya and Uganda and the ride down to Timbuktu in Mali. And so when I look at the map and I think that west coast of Africa from the border of Burkina Faso or the border of the Gambia and go down that west coast to join up and finally get to go through Angola because we couldn't do it last time and reach Cape Town going north to south. So that's something that's on the horizon. But there's also other places I'd like to go, such as Guyana and Suriname. Uh, I still haven't been to Vietnam either, uh, despite numerous trips to Southeast Asia. It's somewhere I'll get to one day. How about the one continent that you've not yet motorcycled on, as far as I can tell? Antarctica is, is that somewhere on the list? Could you foresee a, a crossing of Antarctica? <laughs> I shouldn't really say it'd be impossible to cross it. <laughs> but I certainly follow the polar explorers, um, and particularly the last couple of years, you know, some of the women who have made those attempts to cross Antarctica solo, unsupported, on foot. I did try to get to Antarctica all those years ago when I first made it down to Ushuaia at the southern tip of South America. I'd been told that if you go down to the docks where the cruise ships come in, they sometimes have empty cabins or empty berths on their cruise ships. And I might be able to get a last minute berth on one to get myself over to Antarctica. And if I asked really nicely, I might be able to take my motorbike as well. And I was thinking, so I had all these great plans. But I went down, I spoke to the people down at the docks and they still wanted $2,000 just for that section. And certainly in those days, $2,000 would last me a long time on the road. I'm very good at traveling frugally because the less money I spend on my day-to-day -day living, the longer I can be away. It does tend to be money is what limits my travels, not time. So I just couldn't bring myself to spend the $2,000. I know people who have been sponsored who have been able to do that, but it didn't work out for me. However, I would love to go to Antarctica. I really would. It's 
it has um, piqued my curiosity. Me too. And I've been. <laughs> not, not with a motorbike, though. So with all your adventures, is there a book about them on the way? An autobiography or maybe a novel with you as the lead character? Oh, gosh. I do get asked about this. I do have a manuscript that I need to turn into a book. And that's just about that first trip, England to India. I need to be more motivated. Stop <laughs> dreaming about the travels. Sit down with this manuscript and really thrash it out properly. It's got 72,000 words. So it's not bad for a start, but I can, I can see where it needs lots of work done on it. And I'm not even an author, so I'm sure someone else would look at it and say, and after you've done all that work, it then needs this and this. I think I'm a bit lazy about the writing side of things, but it would be good to get my story out there because I think it's, really, it's a really positive thing to let people know that it's not just men doing these journeys and it's not rocket science. I knew very little about motorbikes when I first set off and knew very little about many of the countries I was to travel through. And also you don't need the big bucks. A secondhand motorbike, a tent on the back and the desire to travel is all you need. So just opening up that world of possibilities of exploring other places to anyone who could be interested in reading it. But also I find um, certainly women when I'm giving my talks sort of say, wow, that's great. I want to do that. And also you can see guys thinking, bloody hell, if she can do it, anyone can. And how many miles has Thelma done now? 238,000. Wow. And you're presumably quite a good mechanic as well now. I'm not bad at the bodge jobs, um, so the roadside repairs, and I'm pretty good at diagnosing things that are wrong. So, for example, I'll think, oh, no, oh, no, I know what this noise means. Oh, I had this happen when I was in Bolivia. OK, I need to go and get this, that and the other sorted. So I'm not the world's best mechanic, but I'm very good at finding a mechanic and telling them what's wrong and what they need to do. And that's the beauty of having an older bike, because I can pull into the tiniest village and remote area of Mozambique, for example. I had a bit of a breakdown there, pushed the bike into the village and there was a mechanic there who'd never seen a big motorbike in his life. You know, I took off the engine covers, showed him the engine. He said, oh, pistons, carburetor, it's like a car. I said, yep, it's like a car. And he's just bang, 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 bang. Here's your broken part. Here's how I fixed your broken part, put it back together and the bike runs. And at times as well, though, I've had people say, right, here's your broken part. I can't fix this part. But I tell you what, our local Toyotas use a part just like this. And the guy will trot off down to the local market. He'll come back with another part that looks almost identical. He'll slot it into Thalma. And sure enough, Thalma will run with that part. And so Thalma's had parts out of Toyota, Mazda, some Russian car that I can't even pronounce the name of and just keeps going. So I think it's having faith. You know, you said about my mechanical skills. I've got to have faith in the people that I put Thelma into their hands, although I am watching over their shoulders sometimes. But also that faith that things can be fixed and you can just carry on. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm wondering at, at some point if BMW are just going to go, here, have a new one. <laughs> <laughs> and you're going to go, no, 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 keep it. <laughs> well, I must admit, I did sort of have that experience in the US several years ago when I'd left the UK to ride to Mongolia and oh, I had a fantastic time. That was after the Timbuktu trip. I went to Mongolia and when I left Mongolia, instead of turning left to come back to Europe, I thought, well, I'm only a couple of thousand miles from the Pacific Ocean. I could turn right and I'll go head to the Pacific because I live at Land's End 
so I live on the Atlantic coastline. I thought that would make quite a nice synchronicity to my journey that I've gone travelled from the Atlantic to the Pacific across the largest landmass on the planet. So yeah, turned right instead of left, went to Vladivostok, uh, reached the Pacific Ocean, ended up getting a ferry, found out there's a ferry to Japan. I thought, wow, who goes to Japan by ferry? So carried on, went to Japan by ferry, spent a bit of time traveling around Japan. And then it was like, oh, what have I got to do here? So I was in Japan running out of money, which is quite often a theme at the end of a trip. And I found the cheapest place to ship the bike to was to Long Beach, California. So I said, brilliant, sent my motorbike across there. Then I had to go off work for the rest of the winter, come back to California, pick up my bike, at which point BMW said, hell, you're doing this amazing journey. We think this is incredible. Your motorbike should be in a museum. And they were going to give me a, a lot of money towards any newer bike in their range. So they weren't going to give me a brand new BMW, but going to give me a lot more money than Thelma was worth to ride one of their newer bikes in their range. But they were going to take Thelma as well. And I said, oh, well, actually, Thelma and I have started this bit of our journey. We're on our way to Labrador at that point. I said, we've started this journey, so I'm not ready to hand her over to you. And actually, I need one of these older bikes for the places I go to. I need an older bike. I can't have one that's so reliant on electronics. The places I go, they don't always have electricity, let alone computer systems. So I need an older bike that's purely mechanical that can be repaired. So I don't really want a newer bike. And I want to keep Thelma anyway. So I said, thank you, but no thanks. I'm carrying on with my journey. But maybe, I don't know what BMW would do now. Well, I think that's a good point about the electronics. You know, I used to take cars to pieces when I was younger. I wouldn't dream of doing one now because of all the electronic components. On all your travels, what's the, the best or the most profound thing that you've learnt about life on the road? You're making me think profoundly. <laughs> you have a lot of hours I, in the saddle what, what goes through your brain what are you thinking usually ABBA songs to be honest oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> no you do start thinking the deeper thoughts about life and reflecting on situations and yes you have an awful lot of time to think particularly if you're crossing places like parts of Patagonia when there's these huge plains or the prairies in Canada or Siberia my goodness endless forests of Siberia so I think it really is something that I've automatically done anyway, which is just approach every new situation with a smile and with a positive attitude and just be ready to embrace what's going to happen and what's unfolding because our destiny is just out there. The more we are open to these new experiences happening, then the more we're going to get out of life. So yeah, I'd say the profound thing is just go at it with a smile. We're going to wrap it up with... Uh... Where's next? Where are we? Uh, where are we going to ex expect to find you? Say this time next year. Oh gosh, I might well be in China this time next year. With all the travels that I've done, I've now got work as a freelance motorbike tour guide, and I work for various companies. I specialise in Asia, Africa, and Latin America. In fact, in about six weeks' time, I'm flying out to China to do a reconnaissance through central China across the Tibetan Plateau recce for a company and then helping them to run that trip next year so are you taking Thelma or are they are they giving you a bike when you get there it'll probably be a brand new triumph <laughs> so yeah so that I mean that's one of the other things with being a tour guide is that depending on well the company that I'm doing the work for and the country we're in 
then generally it is a modern bike and something that they've got the skills as well to help repair along the way if we need to. Makes sense. Well, uh, I have I have one more question. Of course. Chris hates I thought question. you'd forgotten Every it. Every time Chris hates this question. No, <laughs> I thought I was going to let you get away with it, but I'm not. Uh, it's it's something we ask everybody, and I'm I'm curious to know. I mean, I'm I'm getting a sense from you that you are not a person with regrets, but you are a person that's learnt a lot through your life and your travels. So, if you could go back to the younger you, what piece of advice or what tip would you give the younger you that you think would stand you in good stead? Wow, to be braver and to to not listen to people quite so much. I mean, I think I've done quite well in not doing that too much at all. But I truly believe we can achieve anything that we want to. And I think I've proved that with the way I've done things. But I never knew that. It was just something I thought, well, let's give this a try. So, for example, Becky and I sitting there that day saying, yeah, let's go to India by motorbike. Why not? To be brave, so, I think that's a wonderfully succinct answer. And I've got a, a really great can-do spirit from you. I agree with that, David. Very much so. So... Tiffany, thank you so much for your time and for talking to us. It's It's been really fascinating and inspiring, I think, as well. It certainly has. So thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.